0: Well, good morning again. Glad you're here this morning. If you have your Bibles, we are looking at a, a great section of scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 through 17. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and the guys will bring you one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 through 17. All right, starting in verse 14, the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, he says, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. title of my study this morning is The Amazing Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning, Lord, and to be able to be in your Word and to know, Lord, how powerfully you speak through your Word. And we pray, Lord, that as we gather, Lord, that we would have open hearts to receive all that you have for us this morning. We pray, Lord, if there's anyone that has joined us this service that does not have a relationship with you, they don't have their sin forgiven, they're not born again, Lord, would you especially touch their heart today, Lord, that they would come to know you as Lord and Savior. We thank you, Lord, for the power that's in your word, Lord, as you speak to our hearts this morning. We pray your blessing upon our time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I found a list of signs, top ten signs, that you may not be reading your Bible enough. Number ten, the pastor announces the sermon is from the book of Genesis and you have to check the table of contents. Number nine, you think Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob may have had a few hit songs in the 60s, like Peter, Paul, and Mary. Number eight, you open up to the Gospel of Luke and a World War II savings bond falls out. Number seven, your favorite Old Testament patriarch is Hercules. Let that one sink in for a minute. Number six, you're frustrated because Charlton Heston isn't listed in either the concordance or in the table of contents. Number five, a small family of woodchucks has taken up residence in the Psalms of your Bible. Number four, you catch your kids reading the Song of Solomon and you demand, who gave you that stuff? Number three, you think the minor prophets work in the quarries. Minor prophets. Number two, you keep falling for it every time the pastor tells you to open your Bibles to the book of Hezekiah. No book of Hezekiah, guys. Really? No. And the number one sign you may not be reading your Bible enough, your kids keep asking too many questions about your usual bedtime story of Jonah, the shepherd boy, and his ark of many colors. (laughs) Well, according to the Guinness Book of Records, the Bible is the best-selling, most widely distributed book in human history. According to a Barner poll, it's estimated that the vast majority of households own at least one Bible. 87% of Americans own one Bible. Even those hostile to the Bible, 62% of Americans have one in their home. And another 67% of those households that are skeptics own a Bible. Now in a household that typically owns a Bible, the count is three Bibles per household. And homes like yours and and mine, perhaps you, you may own more than three Bibles. Maybe you keep taking them from the church and they're stacking up in your living room. But that's great. That's great. But what about reading the book? Well, 75 million Americans say it's important to read. My question is, how many that say it's important to read actually read the book? It was the late Charles Colson who described the Bible this way. The Bible, banned, burned, beloved... More widely read, more frequently attacked than any other book in history. Generations of intellectuals have attempted to discredit it. Dictators of every age have outlawed it and executed those who read it. Yet soldiers carried it into battle, believing it more powerful than their weapons. Fragments of it smuggled into solitary prison cells have transformed ruthless killers into gentle saints. What I want to do this morning is to look at how Paul gives us three reasons why we need to continue on in God's amazing Word. If you're taking notes, we're going to see three things. Number one, because the Scriptures lead to salvation. Number two, the Scriptures are true and dependable. And number three, the Scriptures are profitable. Why do we need to continue in, in the amazing Word of God? Because, number one, the Scriptures lead to salvation. Look at verse 14 and 15. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now here Paul is referring to Timothy as as being Timothy's teacher, but also we see Timothy's mother and grandmother also taught Timothy the Word of God. I mean, isn't that an awesome thing? You moms and, and grandmoms take heart. Pastors aren't the only ones that can teach the Bible. You are Bible teachers. You're given the responsibility to teach your children the Word of God. That's the best investment you'll ever make in your child or grandchild's life, to teach them the Bible. Timothy had a godly grandmother and a godly mother, and he learned the Scriptures from the time since he was a child. They just didn't teach him facts about the Bible or specific little good stories that they find, but they gave him assurance and spiritual understanding. Timothy knew for himself the truth of the Word of God. He didn't depend on others to defend the Word for him. And I think what a blessing that would have been to be raised in a home where your mom and your grandmother is always teaching you the Word of God, bringing scriptures to your mind. It was never that way for my home. We were taught religion, but not the Word of God. But to have the blessing of, of having someone teach you the Word. Paul here again in verse 15 says, Timothy, from childhood, literally from a young infant, you have known the Holy Scriptures. Listen, I believe the only place that we can know the truth about God about heaven, about hell, about eternal life, about salvation, about spiritual things, is in the Holy Scriptures. Now, in context, Paul, when he says the Holy Scriptures, he's referring to the Old Testament because the New Testament hasn't really yet been formed yet. Even though Paul's epistles uh, were being circulated at the time, and yet even at this, this time, the other apostles even began to view Paul's epistles as Holy Scriptures as well. In fact, Peter mentioned it in 2 Peter 3, verse 15 and 16 when he says this, Considering, Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, and which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of scriptures. See, Peter recognizing that Paul's writings are compared to the rest of scriptures. I think it's a little bit funny that he says they're a little bit hard to understand, okay? You know, Paul being the intellectual, the brainiac, and Peter being the fisherman. He's going, I confess, okay, Paul's pretty deep, but but, but it's, it's scriptures. Now, here's the thing. I think the best way to describe the Bible in one word would be the word unique, unique. Because the definition of the word unique in Webster's is is it's one of a kind, having no equal. That's our Bible. The Bible is unique. It's one of a kind. It has no equal. The Bible is unique in that God has revealed himself to us through the Bible, through his word. And in order to come to know God and to discover God and understand God, one must do so through the Bible. I mean, you can't just throw the Bible into the corner of the room and say, I'm going to go out to the forest and, and I'm going to find God in the stars. Now, the heavens do declare the glory of God, but they don't do in great detail describe the God who loved me and gave His Son to die on the cross for me that, that I can be, as a sinner, born again and forgiven of my sin. You can't get that from studying the stars or from, from looking at the trees. Yes, creation declares the glory of God, but the Bible is the fullest and complete revelation of God that we possess. That's why it's so vitally important for our spiritual life that we study God's Word. And that's also why Christians literally in the church have laid down their lives to, to put the book, to put God's Word in a language for the people so that they can understand. John Wycliffe was the very first to translate the Scriptures into the English language. Here's a picture of John Wycliffe's handwritten manuscript of John 1-1. Just, just It's beautiful. See, John, he wanted to get the Word of God back into the hands of the common people into their own na- uh, native language, and he did so in 1382 when he translated the Bible into English, which infuriated the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church at that time because the, ba- the Bible was, was written in Latin, and they claimed that only the priests and only the hierarchy in the Roman Church could understand the Scriptures and explain them to the common people. That you just couldn't read it for yourself, you know, you know, which, which they did that in order to propagate and place all sorts of burdens upon the people. So infuriated by Wycliffe's teachings and his translation of the Bible into English that 44 years after Wycliffe had died, the Pope had ordered his bones dug up, crushed, and scattered in the river. But then came John Huss. John Huss actually uh, actively promoted Wycliffe's idea that people should be to read the Bible into their own language and that they should oppose the tyranny of the Roman church to threaten anyone possessing a non-Latin Bible with execution. Well, John Huss was burned at the stake in 1415 with Wycliffe's manuscript Bibles used as kindling for the fire itself. But I love the last words from John Huss were that, in 100 years, God will raise up a man whose calls for reform cannot be suppressed. 100 years later, 1517, Martin Luther nailed this famous 95 Theses of Contention into the church at Wittenberg. The prophecy had come true. His 95 Theses of Contention was a list of 95 issues of heretical theology and crimes of the Roman Catholic Church. So why were these men so passionate about getting a Bible into the hands of common people, putting it into their own language? Because they knew what Paul says here in verse 15, that the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, the Scriptures can't save you, but the Scriptures are the avenue in which, by which we come to know the Savior, and then through faith we believe in Him and we trust in Him. Let me say this again. The Bible can't save you, but it's the avenue by which we are saved. There are many people that, that have read the Bible, but if they don't repent and come to Jesus Christ and commit their life to Him, the, the knowledge of the Bible doesn't do them any good. Knowledge of the Bible is not the goal when we come together for Bible study. It's knowledge of God. It's a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to His disciples, or not to His disciples, rather to the religious leaders of His day in John 5, 39 and 40, He says, You search the Scriptures, for in me you think that you have eternal life, and these are they which testify to me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. You search the Scriptures, you're looking, but you don't see me, and you're not willing to come to me so you can have eternal life. Listen, if your Bible says he's not leading you in faith in Jesus Christ, helping you grow in your faith in Jesus Christ, then something is wrong. The purpose of of the Scriptures is to lead us to salvation and faith in Jesus Christ. Now let me say this before we move on. Oftentimes, because we love the Word of God, we love the Bible so much because we know it leads to salvation. We've been accused of being uh, bibliodolaters or uh, Bible idolaters. You know, it, it basically means oh, people say oh, you worship the Bible. No, we're not bibliodolaters. Yes, we love the Bible, but we love it for what it speaks to us about. It's sort of like the picture I have on my iPhone. I have, I have it on my phone. It's in my home screen. It's a picture of my wife. Why? Well, because it's when we were at the Crab Cooker restaurant in Newport, California, and I really miss that restaurant. And so that's why I have... No. That's not why. Although I really do miss that restaurant. But but I can look at a picture and I can say, I'm blessed by what I see. I don't have a relationship with the picture. I don't go around kissing my iPhone, you know, and, and talking to this picture. But but I'm warmed by it because it's, the image speaks to me of the one that I love very much. So too, the Bible, God's Word, speaks to me of the God that I love. It's His, his portrait. It's, it's His disclosure to me. So the purpose of Scriptures is to lead us to salvation and faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, we should continue in the Word of God because the Scriptures are true and dependable. Look at verses 16 and 17. These are one of the greatest verses in the Bible, about the Bible, that we have. Verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Notice how Paul begins here. He says, all Scripture. The designation is the Scripture. Now, we often call it Uh, our Bible, and sometimes we even call it the Holy Scriptures. Well, here in this text, it's all Scripture. And it's the Greek word, graphe, where we get our English term graph from. It refers to that which is written. So what this tells us is that it wasn't enough for God to just think His message or just to speak His message or simply reveal His message through dreams or visions. But God wanted to make sure that this message was, was graphed in, that it was written down in human language so that we could understand it. Now, I don't understand why people have a problem with that. I mean, if God has the technology to create the heavens and the earth, certainly God has the technology to write a book and get it published and make it, make it applicable for every generation. If you believe Genesis 1.1, then you can believe the rest of the Bible. I mean, it's pretty easy. Let's see, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you believe that, then the rest is a snap. I mean, God wrote the scriptures. But then Paul takes it a step further. He says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, how many of you this morning have an NIV version of the Bible? uh, New International Version. Just raise your hand. I'm not going to make fun of you or anything. I mean, you have a newly inspired version. That's okay. No, just kidding. It's a joke. Okay. You actually have a better translation of this verse than I do. Because your version says, all scripture is God-breathed. That's very literal. That word breathed is the Greek word pneuma, which means breath or air, which is where we get our English word pneumatic from. You know, you have pneumatic tires, tires that have air in them. So all Scripture is a result of God breathing His Word to human beings. In other words, God superintended human authors using their own individual personalities to compose and record without error God's Holy Word. Now, Understand, it's not like, you know, the New Agers today who, who, who you know, they sit in the lotus position and they hum and, and their hands start to move and they grab a pen and they go, oh, check it out, and they start writing and they call it spirit writing. Oh, no. Oh, okay, because that's not me. Something is taking control of my hand. That's not what we're talking about here. That didn't happen to Paul while he was in prison there, you know. Well, Timothy, check it out. Something is happening. I'm writing to the Philippians. Whoa. That's not what happened. He wrote a letter. He wrote a letter. That's it. Now, I know there's a mystery involved in it, but Paul just thought, hey, I have to write to the Philippians. I've got to tell them how thankful I am for their offering they sent me and how they should rejoice in the Lord and not be upset because I'm in prison. And Paul just grabbed his parchments and, and started writing to the Philippians. Little did he realize that God, being sovereign, was superintending everything he was doing. I seriously doubt that Paul thought 2,000 years later that we would be studying his letters. But See, God was involved in it, not just Paul. Because, uh, again, this is just not one book. There's 66 separate books in what we call our Bible, written by 40 different authors over a 1,500-year time period. 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books of the New Testament, written in three different languages, uh, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. From three different continents, from all sorts of different people, God breathed His word into them. Shepherds, you know, shepherds wrote part of the Bible. Shepherds, they weren't college graduates. Uh, I mean, for the most part, these are guys out in the fields working with the sheep, and, and uh, they wrote it. David was, was a shepherd before he became a king. Beautiful Psalms that David has written. Amos 1 1 tells us that the prophet Amos was a shepherd or a sheepherder. You know, that politicians helped write the Bible. Right then you go, oh man, I don't know about that. But, but, but again, God inspired. God breathed. Politicians like King David, King Solomon, Daniel was a prime minister. They all contributed to the Word of God. Or take the Apostle Paul again. I mean, Paul was once a Jewish Pharisee until he became a born-again Christian. We know for certain Paul wrote 13 uh, letters that are included in the New Testament. And scholars believe, many believe, that he wrote Hebrews, which then would make it 14 letters, 14 books. You know that fishermen wrote the Bible as well. Now we're getting down, down to the bottom of the barrel here. I mean, fishermen from the Sea of Galilee. Now you'd think it would read more like a, you know, a filled and Stream magazine or something like that. But, I mean, unlikely group of men to author the most revered book in human history. And by the way, it wasn't just 40 guys that got together all at the same time who knew each other and, and got in a room and shook hands and said, okay, let, let's get this story. How are we going to make this strategy, you know, strategize and work this out? No, they came from all different time periods. Daniel wrote in Babylon in a Babylonian palace around 540 B.C. Jeremiah wrote in a dungeon around 600 B.C. Joshua wrote while he was fighting battles in 1390 B.C. Moses wrote somewhere between 1300 and 1400 B.C. out in the wilderness. Paul wrote from a dungeon in prison in Rome in the 60s A.D. Different period, different settings, different authors, different continents, different languages, and yet one message. That we can know God through His Son, Jesus Christ. That we can have our sin forgiven through His Son, Jesus Christ. The fact that God used rich, poor, highly educated, uneducated, the very linear, linear technical thinker, the artistic, means that God wants to communicate His, word, His words to everyone. So whether you're artistic or technical, have a long attention span or short or very educated or, or didn't make it through sixth grade, there's something in God's Word that will speak to your heart. That's one of the fascinating things about God's Word is that it's shallow enough that a babe can enjoy it, yet deep enough that a, a theologian could, could drown in it and never reach the depth of its profoundness. So, how do we know that the Bible is true and dependable? Let me give you four other ways, other than it's God, God breathed, four other ways to know that the Bible is true and dependable. Number one, because you can prove it historically. You can prove it historically. I mean, it has survived against all odds, against several factors that would threaten to destroy it. I mean, think about this. Think about the weather. I mean, you know, if I leave my Bible out in the rain, you know, by mistake, what it swells up about this big, you know, you got your pages, you got goes from here to like this, and, and you, I mean, it, it destroys it. Well, the Old Testament scriptures, they were written on scrolls made of animal skin, usually sheep, sometimes deer or cow, animals considered unclean, you know, like pigs and such by the Jews. They were, of course, they wouldn't use those to make the scrolls with. But when the entire Pentateuch, the the first five books of the Old Testament, was present on a scroll, it's called the Torah, and the entire Torah scroll that's completely unraveled is over 150 feet long. Crazy. And most sheep, what are they, two to three feet long? So it took an entire flock of sheep to make just one Torah scroll. That's a lot of sheep, let me tell you. Then it went from animal skins to something that would last much longer, papyrus made from the pith of a a papyrus plant. I'm sure that made the sheep very, very happy. As long before paper was ever invented. Why? So that the Bible wouldn't be destroyed by weather. It would stand the test of time from weather. Neither was the Bible destroyed by persecution. I think we all know about the Roman emperor's persecution against the early church. How that from the 2nd to the 4th century, there was such an all-out desire to destroy Christianity by the Roman Empire that 7 million graves and 900 miles of catacombs are still visible in Rome today and attested at a horrible time of persecution. We know Caesar started, Caesar Nero started in 64 AD. He decided to take Christians alive, tie them to poles, pour hot pitch over them and use them as the living torches until they burned to death in his garden to light up his parties that they would blame the Christians on the fires in Rome, and that led to a series of persecutions against the church, so that by 303 A.D., Diocletian, the Roman Empire, said that anybody caught with a copy of the Bible would be killed. Scriptures were burned, churches were destroyed, but the Bible lived on, the Bible survived. I've always smiled at the story about Voltaire, who in the 1700s, This French atheist said, I predict within 25 25 years there will be no Bibles on earth and Christianity will have disappeared. I smile because within 40 years of that prediction, his home was used by the Bible Society to distribute the Bibles throughout all of Europe. He was gone, but man, the Bibles continue on. I love God's sense of humor. So the Bible wasn't destroyed by weather. The Bible wasn't destroyed by persecution. Let me tell you, the Bible has not been destroyed by time either. You know, just just two to three thousand years of time. Most documents don't survive that long. One scholar at the time, one scholar said that if you look at all the other works of antiquity penned in the A.D. fifties and sixties, you could fit them between two bookends, spaced about one foot apart, about about that far apart. All all works of antiquity antiquity. But if you take the New Testament, you find something interesting. There are some five thousand seven hundred and fifty manuscripts that exist today. It's huge. It's huge. And if you take all the fragments of the New Testament, you have about 24,000 plus fragments and documents, scrolls from that time. And what's interesting to me is that the earliest copy that we have of the Bible is penned 30 years after its original. after that, And that's the Gospel of John. The, the Gospel of John dates uh, to A.D. 120, 30 years after John originally penned it. And I'm bringing that up because, you know, everybody wants to, to knock the Bible. Oh, you know, there's got to be errors in the Bible. You know, people wrote the Bible. The Bible's invalid. How can you trust an old book penned by people? But nobody knocks the other ancient documents that are out there. The writings of Plato or Aristotle or Homer, they're much less credible evidence on those. You know, the earliest copy that we have of the, of the complete work of Odyssey by Homer was written 2,200 years after the original. 2,200 years. But nobody knocks those. They knocked the Bible. You know, well, that's 30 years after John wrote that. 30, come on. Now the question would be then, how do we know that the Bible is accurate, rep- an accurate representation of the original? I mean, you're saying that these are all copies. So all we have today aren't the originals, but copies of the originals. How do we know they, they didn't get distracted when they copied it? How do you know that the guy copied, you know, didn't have ADD and just, oh, and, you know, and got it, didn't get it right? Well, that kind of shows just the ignorance of the level of integrity of the ancient scribes. I mean, these guys were something. The the Jewish scribes painstakingly produced each scroll. They were perfectionists. We read in the New Testament about the scribes and the Pharisees. A couple thousand years ago in the Jewish religion, if you wanted to become a scribe, it was a demanding and a lofty profession. It took an entire lifetime of commitment. Training began when you were 14 years old and did not end until you were 40. And once you completed your, your, your training, you were moved into the scriptorium where, where you were copying from the master scroll onto this new scroll. And the, the material had to be carefully prepared. The ink had to be specially mixed and selected. 37 letters per line were required. Every line was inspected and then reconfirmed. Every letter, the space between the letters, the number of letters, the number of lines per page, all checked and rechecked. And the middle letter of the page was checked against the middle letter of the master scroll. They had to both match up. If they didn't match up in any of these criteria, the copy of the entire scroll was burned, and the scribe had to start from scratch again, hand-copying it. If two letters happened to touch each other, the document became invalid and had to be redone. On top of that, they must wipe the pen and wash their entire bodies before writing the word Jehovah every time they wrote it. As no document containing God's word could be destroyed, they were stored or burned in uh, Genizah, a Hebrew term meaning hiding place. They were usually kept in synagogues or sometimes in Jewish cemetery. Now, in 1948, the oldest manuscripts of the Old Testament dated back to 895 A.D. But in 1947, a shepherd boy discovered some scrolls inside a cave west of the Dead Sea These manuscripts dated between 100 B.C. and 100 A.D. Over the next decade, more scrolls were found in caves and the discovery became known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Every book of the Old Testament was represented in this discovery except for Esther. Numerous copies of the same book were were found as well. For example, 25 copies of Deuteronomy were found. So all you have to do is take the oldest manuscript we have before the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls and compare them with the Dead Sea Scroll documents which represents you know, hundreds of years in a time gap and look at the copies and you find there is no difference. An incredible consistency of accuracy. So, scriptures are true and dependable because you can prove it historically. The Bible wasn't destroyed by weather, persecution, or time. Number two, the Bible is true and dependable because you can prove it archaeologically See, what archaeological, archaeologically, you know what I'm saying, what it does for us is it substantiates or authenticates the Bible's historical accuracy. I mean, if we can't believe what the Bible says about the cities, about the leaders, about the people, how in the world can we trust it for, for anything else, especially our salvation? We would not be able to, and so we will see the Bible is very accurate historically speaking because you can prove it archaeologically. Now, I've noticed over the years that anybody who's ever tried to make an attack on the Bible on, on archaeological grounds, they, they've really come up short. They, they've, they've failed. In fact, some have even converted to Christianity because of it. Like the story of Sir William Ramsay, a British archaeologist skeptic who said that Luke was a fraud, that he didn't write the Gospel of Luke, and that the book of Acts was inaccurate. He spent 30 years of his life, trying to disprove that, even traveling to Greece, and as you're minded to dig, so he dug, looking at the names and the places that Luke wrote about and discovered not only was Luke accurate, but he shocked the academic world when Sir William Ramsay said, Luke is one of the most accurate and best historians of all times. I love that, and shortly he gave his life to Jesus Christ. Over in Jerusalem, there's a pool, it's now just a hole in the ground, but it's called the Pool of Bethesda. John chapter five says that this pool had five porches, and there was this, the moving of the water, and the people that would lay sick and waiting for that angel to stir up the waters, and that was the tradition they had going on. The problem was that place is only mentioned in the Bible. It wasn't mentioned in, in Roman literature. There was no record of it, and so scientists and skeptics, archaeologists archeolo- have said, ah, it's a fraud. There's no pool of Bethesda. The story's fake. The Bible can't be trusted. It's not true until they started digging around, and, and they found the Pool of Bethesda with all of its five porches. Dr. J.L. Kinneman said this, Of the hundreds of thousands of artifacts found by archaeologists, not one has ever been discovered that contradicts or denies one word, one phrase, one clause, one sentence of the Bible. Rather, they always confirm and verify the facts of the Bible, of the biblical record. So the scriptures are true and dependable because you can prove it historically, Because you can prove it archaeologically. Number three, the scriptures are true and dependable because you can prove it prophetically. I like this one. This is my favorite. Now, we've been studying the book of Isaiah on Wednesday nights and over and over and over again, the Lord has been challenging the people who've been worshiping idols, these false gods saying, come on, can your idols make such claims as these? Let them try to tell what's going to happen, you know, what happened long ago, what's going to happen in the future. If you're God, let them, you know, tell us what will occur in the days ahead. It's basically they can't. And, and then the Lord goes on to say, paraphrase, I'll tell you about things that are going to happen before they happen. fact, I'm going to give you so much detail and so much in advance that you're going to be blown away and you're going to know that I am the true God. Listen, no other ancient book is a book of prophecy like our amazing Bible. Let me give you an example. Isaiah chapter 44. You may want to jot that down. Look it up on your own time. But in that one chapter, several predictions were made. Number one, that the fall of Jerusalem would happen. Number two, that the destruction of the Jewish temple would happen. By the way, Jerusalem was a thriving city at the time it was written, and there was no, no threat to the temple at that time. It was a geographical landmark. And I'm sure that people are going, what are you talking about? You know, it's going to be, be restored and, and, and land. I mean, it's here. Something else in Isaiah 44 predicted that a guy by the name of Cyrus would give an edict to rebuild the temple. Isaiah 45.1 reads, Thus says the Lord his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors, so that the gates will not be shut. You know what's amazing about that? That prophecy was, was given 160 years before Cyrus was ever born. Before mom and dad thought, oh, what a cute baby, I wonder what we should, what we should name him. God says, you'll name him Cyrus. That'll be his name. 160 years. Before he was born, it was penned. Do you know the odds? The odds of Isaiah's prophecy coming true—one in ten to the fourteenth power, one with fourteen zeros after it. And yet the Old Testament, written hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, contains over three hundred prophecies that Jesus fulfilled through his life, death, and resurrection. Mathematically speaking, the odds of anyone fulfilling the amount of prophecy—they're staggering. This is such an amazing thing that many years ago, the late Dr. Peter Stoner, a mathematician and chair of the mathematics department at Westbound College in the 1950s, wrote a book called Science Speaks, and it gives the odds of Jesus fulfilling prophecy. And he says that the mathematical probabilities, he says, we find that the chance that any one man in history could fulfill just 48 prophecies to be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. That's huge. I want you to realize how staggering this is. Let's say, and I've used this illustration before, you take the entire state of Texas and you fill it with, you know, two feet high with silver dollars. And you mark one of the coins with this bright red and, and, and you throw it in the middle of the state someplace, you know, and you blindfold a guy and let him walk through the entire state of Texas. The odds of him finding the right silver dollar that you picked would be 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Let's take it a step further. Let's take the whole United States of America. Let's fill it with two two feet thick of silver dollars. Pre-mark one coin. Blindfold a man. Let him find the one pre-selected coin. The odds would be one in tenth to the eighteenth power. Just one more. Let's take it bigger. Okay, let's take the continent of Africa and Asia. Two feet thick with silver dollars. Pre-select one. Have somebody blindfolded. Find it one in ten to the nineteenth power. According to Stoner, the odds of one man fulfilling 48 prophecies that would be completely out of his control, like where he'd be born, what lineage he would be from, what house he'd be from, etc. The odds would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Okay, Jesus fulfilled 300 prophecies. Man, that can only be done by Jesus. Those odds are astronomical. One in gazillion, gazillion, gazillion. The amazing Word of God. So, Scriptures are true and dependable because you can prove it historically, archaeologically, prophetically. Finally, the Scriptures are true and dependable because Jesus said so. That's the bottom line. I mean, Jesus quoted the Old Testament right around 64 times. And each time he pointed out or rested upon that it was the Word of God that he referred to. Jesus in Matthew 19 affirmed that God created man from nothing and placed him in the Garden of Eden. Matthew 19, 14, 15, he says... Have you not read that he who has made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Matthew 24, Jesus affirmed that there was a literal flood that covered the entire earth as judgment came upon the earth. Matthew uh, 24, verse 37 through 39 but as the days of Noah were, so also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus spoke of Sodom and Gomorrah as a fact. He spoke of manna coming down from heaven as a fact. In Matthew 12:40, Jesus even affirmed that Jonah was swallowed by a big fish, For Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So scriptures are true and dependable because you can prove it historically, archaeologically, prophetically, and because Jesus said so. So the three reasons why we need to continue in God's Word, the scriptures lead to salvation, the scriptures are true and dependable, and finally, number three, the scriptures are profitable. Look again at verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. I like that word profitable. It means useful. Another way of looking at it is it's sufficient. It's not only His divinely inspired word, but it's a sufficient word. There's been so much attack against the sufficiency of Scriptures all throughout the ages, and and, and even more so in the days in which we're living. Christians who believe in the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Bible as the Word of God have been under attack and criticized and scrutinized lately like never before in this generation. And sadly, there are many that are falling prey and giving in to rejecting the inerrancy of Scripture because society doesn't like what the Bible says. We don't like what the Bible says about marriage, about homosexuality, about divorce, so... Well, now we're saying, well, the Bible has a few errors in it. Uh, Paul didn't really mean what he said when he said this. And, and Jesus really didn't mean that. And, and, and they're questioning the scriptures. And now I would think, okay, this is something that maybe in the world that you'd hear about. But this is happening in seminaries throughout the United States. It's sad. Paul put it this way in Romans 3, 4. Let God be true and every man a liar. Listen, we must believe in the sufficient, inerrant word of God, that the Bible has everything we need for life and for godliness. There'll be those that say, well, the Bible doesn't tell me how to fix my car. I say, don't be stupid, okay? (laughs) I mean, it's not there to tell us how to fix our cars. But when it comes to your emotions and to your mind and your soul and your heart and how a husband should love his wife and how a wife her husband, it's there when it comes to how we should raise our children, how we should view people who mistreat us, when it comes to, 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 to growing up. I mean, it's all there. The Bible speaks to us, and it speaks very clearly. And we must obey, and we must believe that it's sufficient to meet all of our needs. Because if the Bible isn't enough to help you, then there's nothing else that, that can. And, and let me tell you, let me, let's close with these last two verses. Let me, let me read them one more time. Look at verse 16 again. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What is the Bible good for? It's it's profitable for doctrine, to teach us what is true, to teach us what is proper about life and death and heaven and hell and what happens after you die. If you ever stood at a cemetery, at a grave and, and lowered someone you loved in the ground, I have. And not only that, I've stood by many other grades. And I tell you what, in a moment like that, you don't need any guessing. You don't need any speculation. You don't need theory. You need inspiration, revelation, understanding, proper doctrine, teaching from God's Word about what happens after you die. Will I ever see this person again? You know, is there life after death? If a man lives, dies, will he live again? Is there a place called heaven where I can see my loved one again? Listen, I can turn to my Bible and I can show people who ask me those questions, what what God has to say to them and bring them comfort and peace at that time. I can tell them the truth and I can tell them exactly what God says about heaven and about hell and about what lies beyond the grave. All because I have the book from God. Let me read the New Living Translation, uh, verse 16 in the New Living Translation. All Scripture is inspired by God. And it's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. Now that's a lot of times, a lot of the reasons why people don't like to hear Bible studies or Bible teachings or sermon based on the Bible because they read it and they go, Oh, I don't like that. I don't like what it's saying. You're getting a little too personal. I don't like that. Maybe you've heard this quote before. The Bible often will comfort the afflicted, but it will also afflict the comfortable. So I think at times we get too comfortable and we need to, to get a little uncomfortable because God's Word can penetrate our hearts. It's a story I found about a factory that shut down because it's, uh, it's machine busted and the mechanics couldn't fix the machine to, to get things back into production. So they called this expert out from the outside who started studying the machine. He, he took out a little hammer. Hit, he hit it at a certain area and the machine started working miraculously. So he gave the company a bill for $1,000 The owner said, $1,000? This is highway robbery. I want an itemized bill. The man said, okay, here's the itemized bill. $1 for hitting with a hammer, $999 for knowing precisely where to hit it. I tell you, honestly, you can read your Bible many, many, many times, and I have for many, many years, but I tell you, I can still open up God's Word and suddenly the Holy Spirit will, will, will... with something to show me and bang, bang, that silver hammer is going to come down upon my head. I'm going to go, ooh, out. That's correction. That's, that's instruction. That's reproof. That's rebu- rebuke. That is if you allow him to. If you let him. Why? So that the man or woman of God, verse 17, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thank God that he has not left us to grope in the darkness. Thank God that he has given us the light of his word to show us a path. Listen, we must stand on the solid truth of God's Word and commit ourselves to study it, believe it, obey it, and next Sunday morning, chapter 4, to preach it. Preach the Word. I want to close with this. You may have seen it before. It's been out a while. It's, it's, not, it's kind of fuzzy, but I wanted you to take a look at this video of this underground church in China getting Bibles for the very first time. Take a look at this video. I don't know how you cannot look at that and not be touched by it, and to see how blessed we are, and how you know how much we take for granted what we have in our hands, what we can hold in our laps. God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. We thank you because you are the God of your word, Lord, and you speak through your written word to show us how to live, how to love, how to have eternal life, how to be saved. How to live a life pleasing to you, Lord God. Lord, your word has all the answers. We thank you for it. Father, help us all to be students of your word. Lord, even if we've never read it before, Lord, help us to make a commitment in our hearts, even this morning, that we will read it and seek you and learn from you. Thank you, Lord God, that we live in a country where we can have these Bibles, Lord. We don't have to fear of it being taken away from us. Lord, we live in a time where it's written in a language that we can understand. Lord, we live in a place where we can see it is true. It's truly inspired through You. So, Lord, we thank You. Father, we thank You for this time. We praise You for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.